go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, Certainly, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Continuing in Exodus 4, 27 to 31. Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they had heard the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. Exodus 5, 20-28 When they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron. And as they were waiting for them, they said to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. For you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm to these people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to seek you in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Exodus six eleven to 13, then 28 to 30. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of this land. Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of this land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now it came about in the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of, all, of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Concluding Exodus 7, 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring about my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did it, and the Lord commanded them. Thus they did. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh.
Going back to Exodus chapter 3, we see in the outset of this section that God is holy and that God's holiness produces fear in Moses. And yet at first, that fear does not lead to obedience. It rather leads to a series of excuses that Moses makes. But as we see by the end of this section, true fear of God leads to obedience and is connected with belief in God who is holy. Why do I say that God is holy? Look at Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2. It talks about the angel of the Lord and a blazing fire in the midst of the bush. And then verse 4, it says, The Lord turned, saw he turned aside to look. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here or move your sandals from your feet. The place on which you're standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. There is a sense that God is holy, both here and later in this section. And what does it mean that God is holy? There's a sense of purity. There's a sense of God's exaltedness. There's a sense that God is not like the false gods of the Egyptians. God is the true God. God is the one who will be known by his people. And so at first, Moses' response is fear and obedience, at least in the removing of his shoes, when he approaches God. When it says the angel of the Lord, and then it says the Lord, and then it says God, this raises questions about how this connects to, as we would understand from the New Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity. And the short summary of it would be this. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament would be the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. But the fact that the next verses say the Lord and God would mean that God in his triunity is speaking to Moses from this, that Jesus is God and all of those sorts of things. That's not the primary point of this text, but when it says angel of the Lord, don't think Gabriel or one of God's other messengers, think God himself is appearing to Moses as he uh, commissions him to go and lead the Israelites out of the wilderness. So we have this appearance of God who is holy. Because this is such a long section, I want to give you a brief overview of the three scenes that we see in these chapters. The first scene starts here in chapter 3, and then the moment that sort of increases the tension is the, the scene of the burning bush by Moses, God speaking to him out of it, This tension continues to rise with the excuses that Moses will give and comes to a climax when Moses meets Aaron and obeys God in chapter 4, verses 27 to 28. And then Moses and Aaron speak to the people, and there's a response of worship. Things are looking pretty good at this point at the end of the first scene in these chapters. Then we have the middle scene, the second scene. Moses goes and speaks to Pharaoh, but the result is not what we would expect based on what we just saw from the children of Israel. Pharaoh hears the message. He refuses to obey. He takes away the straw. He increases the labors. The people are beaten. They complain. The taskmasters say, get back to work. The people curse Moses. And Moses accuses God. And this is perhaps the climax of this entire section. Moses' accusation of God saying, I was right. You shouldn't have sent me. 
you haven't delivered your people at all. And then the, the tension resolves a little bit as God repeats the message and Moses speaks to the people again and yet they despair. Well, then we go to the third scene. God tells Moses, speak again to Pharaoh. And, and the, he says, the Israelites didn't listen to me. Why will Pharaoh listen to me? And then God gives Moses the charge again. And then there's this long aside of a genealogy. We'll talk as we get to that point why that's included in there. And God says again, speak to Pharaoh all that I say to you. And Moses says, I'm unskilled in speech. And God's response is, I'll be with you, the passage that Eric just read for us, and Aaron will be as your prophet, and I am going to accomplish what I said I would do. And then the resolution to this whole story arc is this. God says it, and finally, Moses and Aaron do it. And in the coming chapters, what do we see? God says to do something, Moses says, thus they did it as the Lord commanded. God says, go do this, go say this. Thus they did as the Lord commanded. And the tone shifts from questioning and arguing and doubting God to obedience. Now we know that that's not a perfect shift because there's the incident later in Moses' life when he disobeys God and for that he's not allowed to enter the promised land. But there is a fundamental shift between the beginning part of chapter 7 and the rest of the story in terms of the plagues and all of that in which Moses finally comes to obey. But let's see how the story unfolds a little bit more. The first thing I want us to see from these sections, particularly with regard to Moses and ourselves, is that making excuses for disobedience shows unbelief. Why do I say that? Well, turn back to chapter 3, verse 10, if you're not already there. God said to Moses, I'm going to send you. Moses' response is, who am I? Think about what's going on in Moses' heart and life at this point. Moses has been uh, a shepherd in the wilderness for going on 40 years now. He probably has a sense that his part in the story of the deliverance of the Israelites is over. How can I go back to Egypt? They were trying to kill me. How can I go back to Egypt? They rejected me trying to help them out. How can I go back to Egypt? I have a family and a home and a place here in the wilderness now. But God says, I'm going to send you. And Moses' first response is not, okay, I'll go. It's, who am I? And we might look at that and think, well, that's humility. I mean, he feels like he's not worthy and all those sorts of things. But as these excuses intensify, it's a sign of his unbelief that God is going to do what he said he would do, that he's the right person for the job, and that the Israelites can actually be delivered. Furthermore, it is possible that you might question God's character. Moses' first excuse is this, or second excuse, verse 13, I'm going to go to the sons of Israel. I'll say, God has sent me. They may say, what is his name? What shall I say to them then? You ever, um, you ever do this? You ever have one of your kids do this? When they don't want to do the thing that you've asked them to do, they will come up with all sorts of scenarios that might come up about why it's not going to work out that way. All right, here's the thing that we need to do. And then all the what-ifs start coming out. And obviously this is far more serious because although 
parents have delegated authority from God, children should obey parents. It's not just a child talking to a parent and making excuses for why they didn't clean their room or why they didn't fold the towels a certain way or why they didn't put the dishes away in the right spot or those sorts of things. This is Moses questioning God himself. Look at God's response in verse 14. Familiar verse, I'm sure. I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God reveals himself by a name which he will be known to his people, I am. The Israelites have such reverence for this name, the Jewish people, that they hesitate to even speak it out loud, that when they write it, they put the vowels of another word with it as a reminder that the reader is to say this other word instead of the holy name of God. They have great reverence for God in this name. I am who I am. This is the name that Jesus will claim for himself in John 8:58, for which the religious leaders are ready to stone him because they see it as a claiming of deity as being equal with God himself. So Moses says, if they say, who is the Lord? What should I say? God says, here's my name. And then it continues about all of the things that he's going to do through the end of the chapter. And God outlines how he is going to deliver his people, and not just deliver his people, but plunder the Egyptians, and not just plunder the Egyptians, but break their power to show that he is God. We'll see a, a recurrence of that toward the end there in the beginning of chapter 7. You might question why God picked you to do something. You might question God's character. You might question God's clear work in your life. God has appeared to Moses. God has said, I'm going to send you to do this. Here's Moses' next what if. Chapter 4, verse 1. What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So, I'm not the right person. What if they say, what God appeared to you? What if they say, okay, you said this God appeared to you, but how do we know that he actually did? God gives Moses three signs. The first sign, throw your, your staff on the ground and it will become a snake, serpent. Uh, I know the answers in Genesis folks see this as it becoming a dinosaur, which is an interesting idea uh, and perhaps more exciting I don't know if there's necessarily good uh, warrant for saying that, but the reality is something that's dead becomes alive as a sign of God's power, and then it returns back to being something dead. Think how this connects to God being who He says He is. What is not true about all of the false gods? They don't have the power to grant life. And I know there's the false miracle that we'll see later on, but God is the only and the original creator of all true life. And the prophets will, will bring up that theme over and over again. And then, the second sign, verse 6, put your hand inside your coat. He does. When he takes it out, his hand is leprous. He puts it back in. His hand is clean. Who has mastery over disease and sickness? The Egyptians will see in the coming chapters when they're struck with boils and other diseases, that their gods are not the ones who can save them from disease. The one true God is the only one who has control over all these things. 
And then the third sign, verse 8, if they don't believe the first, first, they may believe the last, but if they still don't believe, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. The passage where he performs the signs here at the end of chapter 4 does not say specifically how many of the signs he has to perform. But it is interesting that he ends up performing two of those three signs before Pharaoh in chapter 7, which we'll get into next week. Moses gives another excuse. You might question your ability to do what God calls you to do. Please, Lord, and this is the excuse that keeps recurring that we saw several times in the scripture reading. Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. That's a fairly eloquent statement for someone who says they can't talk. But even beyond that, what's going on here? He's saying, he's at this point saying, I can't do it because of something that you, the way you've made me, God. God addresses that. Who made your mouth? Who makes man mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Just as an aside, we may question our ability to do what God has called us to do whether due to physical limitation, whether due to um, something that is not, by medical standards, normal in the function of our, our brains or our speech or whatever else. You know what God is saying here? It's not an accident that you are that way. And it's not a reason for you to think you can't do what I'm calling you to do. And so I would just encourage us all that God is the one who strengthens us for the task. God is the one who made the blind man blind in John 9 and then gave him sight for his glory. God is the one who made Moses the way that he was, whether it was to whatever degree it was true. God equips us and helps us to obey the task that he has called us to do. Verse 13, we don't necessarily always see as an excuse, but I would see it as yet another excuse of seeking um, an, an additional reason that he would not do what God calls him to do. Please, Lord, send the message by whomever you will. It's almost like there's an implied parenthesis, but not me. Why do I say that? Because if it was a statement of obedience, I don't think verse 14 would say, then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. Moses, again, he's saying, I can't talk. Do what you want, Lord, but, but maybe I'm not the right person. There's your brother Aaron the Levite. He speaks fluently. He's coming to meet you. You speak to him, put the words in his mouth. I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. Take in your hand the staff with which you shall perform the signs. 
every time Moses raises an objection, God has an answer, which is, here's my purpose, here's my plan, here's my promises, here's who I am. You might seek further ways out from doing what God wants you to do. And this is where I think some of the um, people who look at this passage might disagree. When Moses returns to his father-in-law and says, please let me go that I return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive, Jethro says to Moses, go in peace. Is he seeking permission? If Jethro had said no, what would he have done? The text does not say. But given his hesitance up to this point, I think it's reasonable for us to assume that if Jethro had said no, he would have potentially seen that as, well, I can't go do what God's calling me to do. Again, the text doesn't say that, but I think that even though there's an element of politeness and wanting to leave on good terms with his father-in-law, there is still a hesitation and unwillingness to do what God is calling him to do. What's the other lingering fear potentially in Moses' mind? He doesn't speak it out loud, but God answers it, answers it in verse 19, which is, if I go back, are they going to try to kill me? Verse 19, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. And so there's all these excuses that Moses has or makes or potential for being a reason for not doing what God calls him to do. But the culmination of it is shown, I think, in these difficult verses in verses 24 through 26, which is, God seeks Moses or, and, and either tries to kill him or to kill his son or both. The reason I say it could be either is the him is generic. There's not a name given, so there's two general perspectives on this. One is, because of what he says in verses 21 through 23, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Then comes a story where God is seeking to kill someone. And so some people will look at this text and they'll say, the person whom God is seeking to kill is Gershom, Moses' firstborn son. Or, other people will say, the hymn refers back to Moses because God is speaking to Moses. Now, it, can, it, can be, it needs to be one of those two things, right? But I think the text is left deliberately ambiguous because the point is not primarily whether God is going to kill Moses or whether God is going to kill Gershom. The issue at stake because of what happens in verses 25 and 26, where Moses' wife circumcises her son, is this. Moses, who has been approached by the holy God, has not followed the sign of co the covenant with regard to his son, and as such, what did God's covenant back in Genesis 17 say? The person who doesn't do this shall be cut off from his people. And so... Moses bore some blame of that, of not having done what God required of his people. And maybe he thought, I'm in the wilderness, and God's forgotten about me, and so it doesn't matter if I do all these sorts of things. But there's a sense in which Moses' life is forfeit because he has not upheld the provisions of the covenant, and Gershom's life is forfeit, and coming right after what God says 
about the death of the firstborn of Pharaoh, I think probably it's Gershom's life who's at stake here because it is the act of Gershom's mother, Moses' wife, that stops God seeking to kill the person referenced in verses 24 through 26. But either way, there is an issue of unholiness and uncleanness that has to be dealt with before Moses can go and lead the people out of Egypt. So Moses makes all of these excuses, but the reason that he's making all of these excuses is because in his heart and in his actions, he doesn't believe and trust in following God the way that he ought to. And so, remember I said at the beginning, fear doesn't always lead immediately to obedience. If you saw something really scary happening in front of you and it sort of arrests your attention, the nature of our lives is such that a week later we can go back to doing the same things that we were doing before, right? But until true change takes place and there is actual fear of God and genuine belief, obedience does not take place. So making excuses for disobedience shows unbelief. That's what we see all in this section so far. Secondly, initial belief and obedience is going to be tested by opposition. So things seem to be going well, right? Moses meets with Aaron. Moses and Aaron speak to the people here at the end of chapter 4. And the people's response is belief. They hear of God's care for them. They bow low and worship. Everything seems to be going well, right? And yet, there is going to be opposition. Starting in chapter 5, they appear to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord? Which, ironically, is the question that Moses was afraid the people of Israel were going to ask, but that's the question that Pharaoh asks. What God are you saying I need to listen to? which, going back for a moment to verses 21 to 23, why did Pharaoh respond this way to their message? Don't have time to go into all of the ins and outs of this, but Romans 9 makes it clear that God hardens Pharaoh's heart in order to exercise judgment upon him. Did Pharaoh also stubbornly refused to obey God? Yes. Could Pharaoh have done anything different? That's the question, isn't it? He should have done something different. God is going to use Pharaoh and the Egyptians as an opportunity to demonstrate His power and His sovereignty and the fact that He is the one true God with the goal, as he says later in chapter 6 and also in chapter 7, that both the Israelites and the Egyptians will know that he is God. And so the people who will say, well, Pharaoh started to harden his heart, and then later on God hardened his heart, the passage, I think, doesn't support that, because from the very beginning, God says, Chapter 4, verse 21, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And this is a difficult truth for us to wrestle with because it makes it sound like God is saying, 
this person has no opportunity to trust in me. And we'll talk more about that in our discussion tonight. But the emphasis here is, who is God? Will God's purpose prevail? Will the people know, Israelites and Egyptians alike, that He is God, and God uses Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt to accomplish this purpose? And yet at first, it seems like Pharaoh is going to prevail. Notice what happens. They say, Let's go, let us go three days into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord, otherwise He will fall on us with pestilence or with the sword. Pharaoh says, Why do you get the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Look, the people are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors. Does that recall us back to chapter 1? That's Pharaoh's fear. The people stop working. I'm going to lose control over them. There potentially could be a revolt. And so he gives his excuses, and he instructs the taskmasters in what to do. Don't give them straw. Don't decrease the quota of labor. They want to be lazy and go off in the wilderness for a three-day vacation to worship some god I don't know or care about? They need more work. The taskmasters speak to the people. The people scatter throughout the wilderness to gather the straw. They can't meet the quotas. The foremen are beaten. Verse 14 of chapter 5. They cry out, Why do you deal with us this way? There's no straw The quota hasn't dropped. We can't do this. Verse 17, You are lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, Let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. You will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. They saw that they were in trouble. And then comes what came in our scripture reading. They encounter Moses and Aaron and they say, This is your fault. You did this to us which both foreshadows their continued response to Moses and Aaron's leadership in the wilderness, which is, God brought us and you brought us out here to kill us. The response that is given reveals, I think, how much you really trust God. The people's response revealed, Yeah, we said we're excited. God's heard us. God cares about us. But it hasn't happened yet, and things are getting harder. So where is God? Moses comes before God. You brought harm to this people. Why did you send me? You have not delivered this people at all. And the reason that I say that I feel like this is the climax of this whole set of chapters is this. Remember back to chapter 3. The holy God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush, says, take your shoes off your feet. This is holy ground. He's a burning fire. He's the all-powerful God who's promised to deliver his people. And Moses comes to him and makes accusations against God and says, why have you done harm to them? Why did you send me? Why didn't you keep your promise? We might expect at this point that God's response is a lightning bolt from heaven that fries Moses. But do you know what else this passage, this, this set of chapters teaches us about God? God is merciful towards sinners. 
See, we want to we say, God, it's not fair that you harden Pharaoh's heart. It's not fair that you didn't deliver the Israelites right away. It's not fair and fill in the blank. You know why God didn't deliver the Israelites right away? Because God spared the Canaanites for the whole time that the Israelites were in Egypt. Even though Pharaoh is going to be struck down by the end of the book, uh, this account in Exodus, this section of the story, God doesn't strike him down right away. And more importantly for Moses, God doesn't strike Moses down when he comes before God with these accusations. So consider the mercy of God. Notice how God responds to Moses' complaint. He speaks the words that he's already spoken to Moses, the truth that Moses already knows at the beginning here of chapter 6. Now you shall see. I'm going to keep my promise. Remember what I've done. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Chapter 6, verse 3. I established my covenant with them. Verse 5. I've heard the groaning of the sons of Israel, and I have remembered my covenant. Moses, don't doubt my power to deliver the people, or my intent to do it, or all of the things, the ways I've interacted with those who came before you. You should know who I am. But I will do this, verse 7, and this is an important point in this whole section. I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. What's one of the things that God continuously refers back to his people about when it comes to their sin? or when it comes to their lack of confidence with regard to God keeping His promises, remember Egypt. I did what I said I was going to do. I am your God. You are my people. I have not forgotten about you. I think we see a, a final point in this middle section that we can trust God despite the response of others. Notice Moses obeys... Verse 9, he spoke thus to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. And there may be the reality that God's truth reassures you and you speak it to someone else and that other person is not at that point persuaded by the truth of what God has said. For a variety of reasons, they can't see God's hand and God's work in this situation. Does that mean that you should also fail to believe what God has said, speak what God has said, do what God has said? No. But it may mean that you're doing it by yourself for a brief time. Because that's the experience of Moses and Aaron here in chapter 6 and verse 9. So making excuses for disobedience shows unbelief. Initial belief in obedience is going to be tested by opposition Finally, true belief is shown by immediate obedience. You might be asked to do something that you already know to do. Chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Moses knew that this was his task from God. Your task is to keep appearing before Pharaoh 
and telling him what God is going to do. So it's not like this is new information. It is possible, even at that point, even seeing how God has worked up to this point, that you and I, like Moses, might make excuses. He makes it here in verse 12. He's going to make it again in verse 30 here of chapter 6. Exact same excuse. I am unskilled in speech. I am unskilled in speech. Now, it's possible that verse 11 and verse 30 are a recounting of the same incident. But even if they are, why does Moses put it in here twice? Because he's showing he wasn't following God right away at first. And then we come to this genealogy here in verses 14 through 27. Why a genealogy in the midst of all this? Our natural reaction when we see a genealogy is just to skip right over it because we say, what does this possibly have to do? And it's not interesting and all of these sorts of things. I mean, if we're honest, that's what goes through our minds. I think, among other things, Moses is identifying himself and Aaron, and he is pointing to the fact that God's sovereignty is what put this Moses and this Aaron at this place at this time to speak this message to this Pharaoh. Why do I say that? Well, he starts out, and he talks about the sons of Reuben. Then he talks about the sons of Simeon. Then he talks about the sons of Levi. He doesn't give much attention to Reuben and Simeon. He doesn't bring up Dan at all in terms of the children of Leah and Jacob. So his emphasis is on the family of Levi. He dedicates verses 16 through 25 to the Levites for a couple of reasons. One is to show where Moses and Aaron came from. They are the ones that God has put in the tribe and appointed to be the leaders of Israel. Specifically Moses, but Aaron is a close right-hand support. He is also anticipating the role that the Levites are going to have in leading the people to and, and, and before God. And as I said a moment ago, he's recounting God's sovereignty in putting this Moses and this Aaron before Pharaoh at this point. Why do I say that? Verse 26, It was Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their hosts. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was Moses and Aaron. Why does he say it so many times? He's identifying who God used, and he's pointing out how God has brought them to this point. And that is part of God's work in reassuring Moses and Aaron that they are in the right place at the right time to do the thing that God has called them to do. And then, God asks him either again, or Moses repeats what he said just before the genealogy, so we pick up the flow of the story again. And then this excuse, I am unskilled, how will Pharaoh listen to me? And then what we saw here at the beginning of chapter 7. God's basic answer is this. My character and my promises have to be enough for you, Moses. 
Why do I say that? I make you as God to Pharaoh. Your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. I put you here to do this task. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Verse 4. I will lay my hand on Egypt. Verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God's just repeating the things that He's already said earlier in this whole section. I am who I am. I will give you signs to show that you are my representatives. I will teach your mouth. I will give you strength for the task. I am going to accomplish the thing that I have said that I will do. So here's the question. Are Moses and Aaron going to do it? After all that has taken place so far, after all that God has said, are they going to do it? Verses 6 and 7. Moses and Aaron did. As the Lord commanded them, thus they did. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. And then as I said before, if you notice chapter 7, verse 10, Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh. They did just as the Lord had commanded. Then you go down to uh, chapter 7, verse 20. Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded. And then in, uh, he has this emphasis to point out that at the end of this chapter, they're finally doing what God has called them to do. So what's the main thing that we need to draw up from these chapters? I know it's a long section. I know there's a lot of things that we could talk about, but what's the main point? The main point is this. Your holy God must be believed, known, and trusted. On what basis? Who He is, the signs and miracles that He commissioned, the promises that He's made. That's the first thing. What do you believe about God? Because if we don't really believe who God is, and that He'll do what He said, we're not going to do what He says for us to do. You have to believe and know God for there to be obedience. And when I say know God, this is different from you pull out an encyclopedia and you look up facts, and those facts say... This is the longest river in the world. That's not the sort of thing we're talking about when we say know and believe. A closer parallel would be the illustration of you pull out a chair or a bench and you say, yeah, it can hold me up, but until you actually sit down on it, you don't actually believe and should demonstrate that belief, right? So there's an element of that. And even that's not a perfect illustration. But the first thing that God is dealing with, with Moses, with Pharaoh, and with the Egyptians and Israelites broadly is, do you know who I am and do you believe me? Pharaoh doesn't believe God. That's why he doesn't let the Israelites go. He doesn't think this God can't do anything to me. Moses doesn't believe God at first. That's why he makes all these excuses. The Israelites seem like they believe God, and then the minute things get hard, they question God because they don't truly believe yet. 
But then connected with that is this idea that your holy God must be obeyed, reverenced, and worshipped. Why do I bring that part out? Because there's, there's things throughout these chapters, this idea of covenant, this idea of commands, things that God requires. Belief, when the truth about God really sinks into who we are, our souls, what's the natural result? We keep God's covenant, we do God's commands. What commands? There's all sorts of specific examples I think we're familiar with from the New Testament. But what's the basic thing that God has wanted people to do ever since the beginning? Love God with all of who you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else flows out of those two things. That's what Jesus said on these, hang all the law and the prophets. So, there's different ways to look at this. We could start with, do you believe God? Or we could start over here and say, do you love God with all of who you are? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? When you don't, there's a reason connected with failure in belief that is the reason you're not fulfilling those two commands. When you are doing those things, then it is flowing out of some measure of right belief which we continually need to grow in and understand God more and draw closer to Him. Sometimes we look at the book of Exodus as mainly about God getting the people from one place to another place. Exodus is about a whole lot more than that. It's about God changing people's hearts from one sort of heart to another sort of heart. It's about God creating a people for Himself. It is not unlike when we come to the New Testament, the difference, subtle yet important as it is, between when you think of Christianity, do you think of it as, I'm going to heaven... Or, I know God. Why is that important? Because going to the land of Canaan was never about the place. It was about the fact that God was going to dwell there with His people. And going to heaven is not about getting to a better place. It's about being with the God whom you presently know, which as John 17.3 says, is eternal life. And so don't be like the Israelites in this chapter. They were focused on getting out of Egypt and going to a different place, and they thought that everything would be set at that point. But what do we see as we come through the rest of the book? Their sin follows them. They need God still. And so this theme of God being known and being obeyed is going to continue throughout the book, but it's highlighted here in the personal experience of Moses, in the response of the people, in the response of Pharaoh. Your holy God must be believed and obeyed. Or as I said a few moments ago, don't focus on the place, focus on the person. Because that's what Christianity is about.
It's about God Himself. It's not about you're going to have a nice house up in glory. Let's pray, and then we will do the Lord's table together. Dear Lord, as we have looked at these many verses, skimmed over them, there's no way we could do them justice in this short time, but Lord, hopefully we've seen this overall unfolding of this tension of belief and obedience and and how you resolved it in Moses' life and how you continue to work in it in the lives of the people of Israel. Lord, it's so easy for us to say, well, Moses, just do what God told you to do. Israelites, you saw all these amazing things, just follow God. Then we look at our own hearts and lives and we say, if they had this, we have so much more. And yet so often we fail to believe and we fail to obey Lord, work in our hearts, increase our faith, deal with our unbelief, that we might obey and worship you as you have made us to do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.